What is Christian privilege? I like to define terms. Let's start with the obvious. What is a Christian? I don't want to assume. What's a Christian? A Christian is a learner, a follower of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. As he is presented in the scriptures. That's key. Not a Jesus of our imagination. Not a Jesus that we conjured up in our, in our minds. But a Jesus as revealed in scripture. You know, if you go to a basketball game and you wear a helmet and you wear a pad and you wear cleats, you have a sport, but you got the wrong sport. Maybe we've been worshiping the wrong Jesus. Maybe we haven't pressed into who he's calling us to be. Maybe we have not really lived into our Christian privilege. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Life Church Canton podcast. My name is Sam. I'm the host for the show. Thanks so much for listening. As you heard in that clip, uh, we are talking about Christian privilege in this series. In fact, that's the title. Um, and I'll let Daniel uh, kind of set up the series as he does at the beginning of his message. But there are a few things that I wanted to let you know about that are happening at Life Church Canton. Um, this weekend was the launch of the Life Journey process. And that uh, has been a, a long time in the making. Uh, I want to shout out to our pastor, uh, John Grandy, who's uh, spent a lot of time uh, getting that thing uh, up and running. Um, and there's, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of life that's going to come from that. So um, if you're interested in that, uh, go talk to John um, or go to the Life Church Canton.org slash now and you can find more information about that. Also, uh, we will be having a new life weekend um, coming up at the end of the month here. So um, just wanted to let you know about that. Here's Daniel. Enjoy the message. Well, I'm excited as we continue or start off this series on Christian privilege. And as such, we find ourselves in the book of Philippians. Uh, namely, we'll be narrowing down to Philippians chapter 3. Uh, Philippians is one of the prison epistles, so-called because Paul penned this, wrote this while he was in prison. He writes three other epistles or three other letters. Paul writes to the church of God in Caesarea Philippi, also known as the Philippians. He writes to them for two reasons at least. He writes first to encourage them. He wants to encourage them to rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because of their shared union in Christ and because of Christ's faithfulness to them. Secondly, he wants to exhort them. He wants to strongly urge them to stay united and they do this by avoiding false teachers and their false teaching. And so we find ourselves in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, 2, 3. If you have a scripture, a Bible, a pad, pull it out and it will also be on your screen. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, 2, 3. Finally, brethren, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you again is no trouble to me for it is a safeguard for you and Paul says beware of dogs beware of evil workers beware of the false circumcision for we are the true circumcision those who worship God in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh when I was growing up and I was starting off in the workforce, I had no guidance. 
I had nobody there to care for me, to walk me through the process of fixing a resume and putting on a tie, putting on a suit. Things that you think a man should know or a young person should know as they enter into the workforce. And I would sit in the interviews and I would be asked a plethora of questions. And at the end of the interview, if you can attest to this, they will come up and say, do you have any questions for us? (laughs) Unskilled, unlearned in how to navigate that process, I would say, no, I was just happy to be there. I just wanted a job like they do in the Grammys. It's an honor being nominated. I'm just happy to be here. (laughs) So happy that I wouldn't ask about the perks or the benefits of the position. In fact, y'all, I'll be honest with you, I wouldn't even ask about salary for fear of being disqualified. This carried on for years till I found what was the best job I have ever had at that time. I was going to be a director of administration at a great social work service agency. And I was excited to be in the room, got my best outfit on. I knew how to dress now. I learned some things, but I still had not learned to navigate. And so I was asked all these questions to find out if I was a good fit for the position. And like every time else, The HR lady stops and says, well, Daniel, that's been an hour and a half. Do you have any questions for us? Nope, I'm just happy to be here. (laughs) And when I got the job, and even after time on the job, I was more excited at my title and comfortable with my title. I didn't even press in to see, hey, what perks and benefits do we have? I'm just a director, I'm excited, you don't understand. I'm heartbeats away from the CEO, I'm excited. I'm the only African-American director this agency has ever had. I am above water, I have arrived. It wasn't until years later that I ran into people who worked at the same agency that I began to learn that there was a lot more to my job than I ever thought. I began to learn that they had a 401k plan that the agency matched fully. Do you know how much money I left on the table? I learned that they had free premium life insurance that I could have taken advantage of. I learned that there were many vacation hours and expense reimbursements that I never took advantage of. I said I was content with my title. Contentment sometimes is a mask for laziness. Sometimes complacency is dressed up as contentment. Sometimes we're content and we don't push in to see what privileges we have. And so therefore, because you and I are similar, we walk this Christian walk and never ask, what does this identity give me? What Christian privilege has God given that I don't ask about and that I don't push into? So we want to help unpack that. In the next few weeks, my brothers and I will be preaching and teaching about what it means to be a Christian and the privilege that God has given us to unpack that so that years from now, decades from now, you're not like me, mad at all the money I left behind, all the free things and all the truths and all the responsibilities, but all the privileges I came with that position. I regret it now. And I realize now, looking back, that my so-called contentment was just a covering for my complacency. We are content with the Christian title, and we should. God called us, made us his own, called us by his name. What if there was more to this walk? What if he's calling us to go deeper into who he has made us to be? 
What is Christian privilege? I like to define terms. Let's start with the obvious. What is a Christian? I don't want to assume. What's a Christian? A Christian is a learner, a follower of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. As he is presented in the scriptures. That's key. Not a Jesus of our imagination. Not a Jesus that we conjured up in our, in our minds. But a Jesus as revealed in scripture. You know, if you go to a basketball game and you wear a helmet and you wear a pad and you wear cleats, you have a sport, but you got the wrong sport. Maybe we've been worshiping the wrong Jesus. Maybe we haven't pressed into who he's calling us to be. Maybe we have not really lived into our Christian privilege. So a Christian is a learner, a follower of Christ, as we view. This is God incarnate, God in person. This is the God man, not a Jesus that we imagine. Then what is privilege? Well, Webster says privilege is a special right, a special advantage, an honor that is granted and available to a particular group of people. And so when you put that together, Christian and privilege, you have a special right, a special honor, an advantage that is strictly for Christians. This is what we speak of when we say Christian privilege. And as I set the table for the next few weeks, as I sort of want to set the background for the next few sermons that are coming up, I begin to ask a question about this passage. And I ask myself, what is Paul saying in this passage? What is God meaning to teach us in this passage? And I think Paul is asking us to ask ourselves this question, what is keeping me from pressing into God? And Paul does that by saying, it's false teachers and their false teaching. It's a faulty theology that causes me to not want to know more about who Christ is and even more so who I am in Christ. Paul says false teachers. Look with me if you will. It says beware of dogs. This is not cute little fluffy. This is not a domestic animal. In the ancient world, they had no domestic pets. This is Cujo. Remember Cujo? This is, this is a, a hyena. This is wild dog. These are ravenous beasts. These are filthy, disease-infested creatures who were scavengers, who would bite you and chomp at you. Paul says, beware of dogs, figuratively using the same language that was used for Gentiles, now using it for Judaizers, Jewish people who were saying, you need Christ and then something else who did not believe that Christ was sufficient for salvation, but you had to add something else. It was a works-based theology that you had to earn God's salvation. Paul says these are mangy dogs. These are filthy animals who, like actual dogs, eat at your soul. In fact, dogs are easier to recognize than false teachers. You see a dog foaming in the mouth, you probably shouldn't invite it home. What happens with the subtlety of false teachers who lure you in, suck you in because they want to eat at your soul, want to scavenge you for everything that they can eat, want to consume you, want to say tantalizing teachings to your soul that make you feel warm and fuzzy but have no substance in who God is. He says these are dogs. These are dogs who eat at your soul says these are dogs wild dogs but Paul says beware of these dogs and I would like to say also beware of their dogmas so if I was going to give this a title I would say beware of dogs and their dogmas what's a dogma well 
This is how it's defined. A dogma is a set of principles that are laid down by a so-called authority as absolute truth. These dogs and their dogmas are invading the heart of the people of God and it's forcing them to pull back. They were Christians in title, but Christians who didn't press in to find out what all that title actually means. Paul says these teachers are teaching a theology, a gospel that's human-centered, that's built on human achievements. They, they, they were teaching a gospel that had a, a great large view of humanity, but a very low view of God. This was a small God theology. And when your God is small, all your problems are magnified. When your God is big, all your problems are minimized. You remember the story of the people when they were leaving Exodus and they went to the promised land and, and there was 12 of them that went and then 10 came back and said, there's giants over there, bro, I can't go in there. I assume they were African-American. Um, they're like, you don't understand, there's giants in that land. Then two came back and said, you don't understand, we have a great God. You see, when you look at the giant compared to you, this is monumental. You can't, you, can't, you can't overcome this. But when you look at the giant compared to a god, you remember the Avengers, they said, we have a hawk. We have a god. We have a god who is bigger than our trials. And he was teaching them, Paul says, you can't, you can't fix your soul, your faith on this small god theology. This, this god that, that is not asking of all of you, but some of you. Paul then contrasts between what he calls the false circumcision and the true circumcision. I love what Paul does here because he does a play on words. He says, you are the katatome and you are the peritome. The katatome means a circumcision that's cut off. This is very vile. It's cut off. It's mutilated. It's mangled, which makes sense because these false teachers were mangling the gospel. It was scavenging the gospel, destroying the gospel. But he says, no, unlike that false, mutilated gospel, you are the true circumcision where God has circumcised not your genitals but the heart. He has cut around the skin of the heart to unveil the heart that it may absorb the truth of God. Isn't that funny that it takes God to be able to see God? It takes God to open our eyes to be able to see him for who he is. He has to do a work, a surgical work to open up the heart that the heart may receive the goodness of God. That's an amen moment if you ever had one. That my salvation is not dependent on me because the best thing that I know is just about what feeds my flesh. God's trying to feed our soul. He says this gospel, this mangled, mangy, manipulative, mutilated gospel cannot be compared to the gospel where God cuts the heart open and unveils that heart so that heart can absorb God's truth. He says, this is the true circumcision. You see, the false teachers were teaching a gospel that was meritorious. In, in other words, a gospel that you had to earn. And you earned it two ways, either by hereditary or by human achievement. You see, they spoke about their Jewishness. I am a Jew. They had national pride and national privilege. They were proud to be Jews. They were proud to be God's elect. It was first of all the nation of Israel and then God. Okay, maybe that's too far. It was first of all America and then God. 
I'm proud to be an American. When your national pride begins to compete with God, then your national pride is your God. They were more patriots than they were believers in God. And this theology was based on hereditary. You had to be born into it. You had to earn it through your lineage, if you will, or your state. Or maybe it's ethnic pride and privilege. Perhaps it's white privilege. Perhaps it's black ethnocentrism. Perhaps it's it's the fact that you find your identity in your color of your skin rather than using that beautiful skin that God made to worship God and see that as part of God's creative work. Maybe you have ethnic pride and ethnic privilege. Maybe it's familiar privilege. Maybe your lineage. Maybe I come from a good stock. Or maybe I don't come from a good stock and that weighs on me more than my new identity in Christ. I'm a Nigerian. I can boast of the fact that I got kings and chiefs in my system. Sucks for me because I can't pay off my student loans with all that chiefing. (laughs) Wish it meant something. (laughs) But the day you find pride in your ethnic background more than finding pride in your new identity in Christ, your ethnicity is your God. So whether it's hereditary or as we move into it, human achievements. This one hits even closer to home. Maybe it's self-pride. Maybe the achievement of self-pride. I did it on my own. I pulled myself up in my own bootstraps. Something in us wants to take credit. Something in us even thinks that our experiences are more valuable than other people's experiences. I remember growing up, I used to complain about walking to the bus stop. Be like, Dad, it's cold outside. I got to walk to the bus stop. I'd be like, back in my days, we didn't have no shoes. Then Grandpa perk up. Back in my days, we didn't even have no legs. <laughs> then how'd you get... Anyway. Something in us values our experiences more than others. This self-pride. Maybe it's educational or intellectual pride. I've got degrees. Paul knows about that. Paul had more degrees than a thermometer. Paul knows. Had a PhD. Had a master's level. Had a PhD on a PhD. But he says, I count it all as rubbish. Not that your degree is rubbish. Trust me, because I paid for it. I don't mean. But if that degree weighs more than the glory of God, then that degree is your God. If that degree is used in the line of service of God and people, then that's a good degree. So we're not saying your degree is bad. We're saying if that degree is worshipped as your identity. Maybe it's financial pride. Maybe for you, it's your wealth. It's what you have, what you've attained. It's a sign of success. Maybe on the other hand, you don't have wealth and all of your life you've been trying to get to this place where you can make a lot of money because that for you is a rival. Maybe it's seen in the prosperity gospel where churches are more interested in people's money than they are in their soul. 
Or maybe it's seen even in the people who will give thousands of dollars to things that are sinful and ungodly that hurt people. But when you tell them to give to God's house or to people of God or to help people, it's not in the budget. Maybe it's a financial pride or privilege. Maybe it's social economic pride. We talk about the class system in India, how they have caste system, but we have it here too, where the have and have nots can't see the eye to eye, where your pain because you're in your ivory tower doesn't allow you to see the plight of the people. Or maybe on the other hand, I'm trying so hard to keep up with the Joneses that I'm losing my mind. I remember an old preacher used to say, I never understood why people would spend money they don't have to impress people they don't like. <laughs> Socioeconomic pride and privilege. And maybe lastly, it's professional pride. Your title. I used to work with a young lady who got her doctorate and used to make everybody in the office call her doctor. I appreciate that. I appreciate that you worked hard for your doctorate. But it seems like your, your, your identity is wrapped up in that degree. And if you never have that degree again, you can't function. I was listening to the news the other day, and a lady said politicians are more concerned with keeping their job than doing their job. Maybe it's professional pride. You see, the theology of these false preachers, these false teachers, was about appearance only. They wanted to conform to the outside forms of godliness. They had the church knees or the Christian knees. They knew how to look godly. And if they looked godly, they said they were godly. Their faith did not rock their soul, did not go into it. It's not substantial. It is superficial. It is titled alone. And the Bible says it this way, they're always learning but never coming to the knowledge of God. What a frivolous, it's like a hamster in a wheel. Keeps, keeps trying to, keeps accumulating information but doing nothing with it. They don't press into their Christian privilege. Paul says, unlike them, we are the true circumcision. We are those who don't put faith or confidence in the flesh. We do not put our confidence in our degrees, in our ethnicity, in our nationality. We put our confidence in God. Our circumcision is not made by hands. It is a spiritual circumcision where God continues to cut off that callous skin but closing our hearts so that we can know him better and better and deeper and deeper until we finally know ourselves through him. Paul gives us three characteristics for true circumcision. He says they are those who worship in the spirit of God. And they are those who glory in Christ. And we'll unpack this. And thirdly, they are those who put no confidence, zero, zilch, nada, no confidence in Christ, in, in the flesh, but in Christ. They worship in the spirit. This term has to do with temple worship. It means they serve God as priests in his temple. They are part of the household of God. He says they have an inward spirituality that shoots outside, an inward spirituality that manifests physically, not one outwardly that has no internal impact. So 
These are those who serve God in his spirit, by his spirit. Their service to God, their worship to God is energized and focused by the spirit. The spirit is what initiates their worship. How do you worship God? It is not about raising your hands and waving your hands. You can do that, amen, but it is a heart that is humble before God. One preacher used to say it this way. Worship is when we bring all of our gods, the God of sex, the God of money, the God of pride, the God of addictions, the God of whatever it is, the God of of work, the God of, of finance, the God of careers. We bring all those gods to bow down before the real and true God. That's what worship is. Worship is when we bring all, all of our false gods, our false idols to the altar of the one true God that they may bend the knee to him, the one and true God. That's what worship looks like. That's what Holy Ghost-filled worship looks like. And he says they glory in Christ. The word glory here means to boast. That they don't boast in their personal achievements, in their hereditary or in their human achievements. They boast in the work of God. They boast in Christ. Not boasting in the fact that they know God, but that God knows them. Paul says, we boast. We are happy and prideful about what God has done, what he's doing in us and through us, how he gives us the power to do and undo, how he is animating us, letting us get up every day. But even more than that, we boast in the fact that he saved us and that we are continually being sanctified, set apart, cleansed, and worshiped by him. Says we glory, we boast in the work of Christ in contrast with those who self-glory, who boast in their own achievements, their own hereditary. I'm a Jew, you don't understand. I'm a Hebrew, you don't understand. I'm American, you don't understand. I'm a this. No, we boast in the fact that we belong to Christ. Paul says those who have experienced God's grace are the true circumcision, not the false circumcision. And then thirdly, they put no confidence in the flesh true believers have no confidence in the flesh in their hereditary or human achievements they do not put their confidence in human initiative or human energy but they rest in the finished work of Christ they press into their Christian privilege which is their union with Christ Paul says one of the things that keeps us from pressing into Christ It's false teachers and their false teachings. Beware of dogs and their dogmas. Let me give you some action steps. Some action steps that I think will set us up well for the next few weeks as we look at verse 9, verse 10, and sorry, verse 8, verse 9, and 10 as we unpack those things to see aspects and elements of our Christian privilege. I want you to take inventory of your life. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 says it this way, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus is in you unless you fail the test. When you test yourself based on truth of scripture, you either find yourself pressing into Christ or pressing out. There is no in-between. You ever heard that old song? You're going to serve somebody, you might as well serve the Lord. There is no in-between. Do I got old saints in the house? You don't remember that song? Amen. 
Take inventory. Take inventory in your life. Sometime this week, at your kitchen table, at your office desk, in your car, some of us who have kids, in your driveway, <laughs> your parking lot, wherever you can find time, ask yourself these questions. What dogs or dogmas influence your spiritual walk? What dogs or dogmas are hindering you from pressing into your Christian privilege, your identity in Christ? What dogs? Who are the dogs? This is the who, if you will. Who are you listening to? What teachers and preachers are influencing your life? What mentors are mentoring you? Is their mentoring built on the truth of God or is it about how they feel about something? Who are your counselors? Be it professional or even friends. Who's counseling you? Who's speaking into your heart, into your mind? Is it you? John Calvin calls the human heart idolarum fabricum. The human heart is an idol factory. It's pumping out idols faster than you can destroy them. It's pumping out false gods. It's like whack-a-mole with your heart. You destroy it, something else raises up. It keeps telling you this is other things that you need to trust in. No, trust in that person. Trust in this thing. Trust in that philosophy. No, 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 no. Don't trust in that. You keep breaking them. It keeps building them. Human heart keeps pumping out these idols, these false gods that we worship. If it's you, have that conversation. Take this inventory. What dogmas? This is the what, if you will. What principles and paradigms? What codes of conduct? What philosophies? What prevailing thought rules your life? What new fad, new fashion, new way of thinking? What new age theology is running your life? What's the source of your theology? And then sometimes we say theology, people think preachers are the only theologians. No, we are all theologians. We all have and possess or promote some view of God. We all have some understanding of God, whether it's the God of our imagination or the God in Scripture. We are all theologians. Don't outsource your spirituality. Amen. Own it. Don't outsource your spirituality. Think through that. What are the theologians that are speaking into your life? What's the source of your theology? What's the source of your worldview? Why do you see the world the way you see the world? What makes you see the world the way you see the world? It's a good inventory to have, to have that conversation with oneself. Why do I see things the way I see things? And once you've made the list, like Santa says, Check it once, check it twice. Make sure you're naughty or nice. Okay. Amen. <laughs> check that list. Pray over that list. Never underestimate the ability to pray and talk to God. Pray over that list. Ask God, what would you have me to cut away? Here's the thing. If you make a list and there's nothing to cut, you ain't being honest. <laughs> Amen. You got to listen. You, you got A+. Plus. <laughs> Don't lie to yourself. <laughs> and I'm going to do this myself, so hold me accountable. The second thing that I want us to do is read through Philippians every week. It's only four chapters. I want you to do that for multiple reasons. I want you to keep the preachers honest. Amen. Don't outsource your spirituality. Study and show yourself approved. Be able to edify us. We are human beings and we are flawed. 
But secondly, and even more importantly, you will get the best out of the next few weeks of sermons if you've studied and the Spirit of God can confirm the things that are in his word through the speaker. God does that. Read through this chapter, this book. Meditate on it. You could even do audio stuff. You don't have to read. If it's hard for you to read, hey, man, just play the audio of it. We've got apps for everything, folks. And for those of us who are in here and you're not a Christian, you may be saying to yourself, this message is not for me. It actually is. Paul starts off and says, rejoice in the Lord. He asks them to rejoice in God. Why are they rejoicing in God? Because of their union with Christ. You see, union with Christ is not just for this world, but it's about our eternity. It's about where you and I will spend eternity. You cannot get to heaven and say to God, if he says, why should I let you into my heaven? And you say, well, the paradigm of the day or the philosophy of the day or the theology that I was listening to or the false prophets or the dogs and the dogmas that I paid attention to says that I can come in here on my own merit. My hope for the Christians in here is that when we stand before God and he says, why should I let you in? That we will say, because Jesus. That's all. Because Jesus. And that he would respond and say, welcome, good and faithful servants. There's a flip side of that. There will be those who stand before God, even professing Christians who just love the title but are not really connected with God, who have a false circumcision, not a true circumcision. They will get there and he will say, depart, I never knew you. And for those who are yet to trust in God, I don't know where you are in that process. I don't know if your heart has so-called trusted and you've gotten cold to it. I don't know where our processes are. But there is a wise man in the Bible that we rarely talk about. And he said to Jesus, Jesus says, believe and this will be this and this will be that. And he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. Help me. Help me to want to want to believe. Help me to see you. It is interesting to me. It is a mystery to me how God himself has to do a work in us in order for us to see him. If you're here, let's stand together. If you're here and you don't know Christ and you are sincere and not intellectually dishonest with yourself, you need to get that answer right on this side of heaven. Ask him. You may pray like this, Lord, I hear the preacher say that we have all sinned and come short of our glory. And maybe even that concept is hard for you to understand. And maybe your prayer is, God, show me if I have sinned against you. Show me how I have robbed you of your glory, how I have tempted to take of what is yours for mine, how I have attempted to be my own God. I'm trusting that God will show up in a sincere question like that. You pray that prayer, that God, I need you, I want you, I want to know you. Maybe you're further along that journey. You are a Christian in title only. And you're saying that this, this thing called Christianity, it seems real. It feels real. I want to know that I know that I am his. There's something that's called a blessed assurance where the spirit of God assures you of your identity. The Bible says the spirit has been given to us as an earnest money deposit to show you of the glory that's coming. My prayer for us. Notice I said us. 
Nobody in this room is exempt. In fact, those who preach the gospel need to be doubly aware because we are held accountable to a stricter judgment before God. Let's pray as a family. Father, I stand here not as one who has attained it, but if I could be for a second, a representative of our people here at Life Church. And Father, we pray as a people that even more than our own personal inventory, that you, God, will take that inventory for us and begin to work on our hearts even now to show us the dogs and the dogmas that are keeping us from pressing into our privilege of union with you. And that every heart in here, whether it knows it's yours or doesn't know it's yours, would begin to surrender to the power and the weight of your glory. And that we would not boast in the flesh. That we would boast in the work of Christ. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To say the same thing to you is not a burden, not a trouble for me. It is for your safeguard. Brethren, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we, you and I who believe in Christ, are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And we put no confidence in the flesh. But our confidence in you, help us, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. And all God's people said, Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you want to find out more information about Life Church Canton or other churches in the Life Church Network, you can text I'm New to 734 349 3475 or fill out the form linked in the show notes below and someone from the church will reach out to you with more information. If you came to Life Church for the first time this past weekend, we would love to know about it. We believe that life isn't meant to be lived in isolation, but we want to connect with you and learn to live like Jesus in community together. If you want to email the show, you can do that at podcast at lifechurchcanton.org. You can subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you might be listening to it. Um, And if you're enjoying it, please share it with a friend and leave us a review. Once again, my name is Sam Parham, and you've been listening to the Life Church Canton Podcast. Have a great week, everybody.